welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome back to A Congruent Life, where we're sharing inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness and exploring congruence from many different perspectives. My name is Andy Gray. Thanks for joining in with us, wherever you might be. This is episode number 13 of A Congruent Life, where I'm talking with Mike Botkin. I'm talking today to Mike Botkin, who is a a wilderness guide and executive director of an organization called Rites of Passage, not to mention a pretty awesome guitar player. Mike, welcome to A Congruent Life. Thanks, Andy. Just to kind of at a high level, can you describe for our listeners what your work is like? What What is it that you do in the world? I am the director of Rites of Passage. It's an organization that guides people on wilderness vision quests, basically journeys into nature to mark life transitions, to mark meaningful life changes, and to do healing work. And I've been doing that work for a number of years. That, that work's really important to me. What was your life like before you started doing this? You worked as a therapist, I believe, for a number of years, right? Yeah, I did. I spent about six, seven years in the Midwest, kind of between college and coming out to California, where I've lived since 1977. I went to grad school in Wisconsin. Along the lines there, I got really involved in backpacking, and I got a bunch of really fine training from gestalt therapists that I met along the way. That was a a field I was pretty passionate about for a number of years. Um, So I had some really great personal teachers and guides for me, really. And at one point, and I got into playing a lot of music, and at one point I thought how great it would be to be able to combine being in nature and doing inner important healing work and maybe throwing in a little bit of music, too. So how did you start making those connections between your work, your healing work as a therapist and the power of the outdoors and wilderness and the healing that comes from there? You know, the inner connection came from going on personal backpacking journeys, spending a lot of time in nature. At one point in the late 70s, I spent, I hiked 70 miles which isn't that much. It's certainly not like a huge athletic feat, but I was alone for about eight days in the backcountry in Canada. Spectacular countryside, but it was also a deep inner journey. And I, Canada was a place I went a lot to discover myself. And I I remember um, sitting out by these rocks after sunset, and I had bought these little Cuban cigarillos and I was smoking a Cuban cigar and drinking white wine that I had backpacked up. And I'd been eating a trout dinner because somebody handed me a bunch of fresh trout. I was reading a book. I needed to bring a book with me that was light enough to backpack. And I'd found a, a little hardcover book called Zen in the Art of Archery. And I was reading and smoking a Cuban cigar and drinking white wine and having really deep insights <laughs> into my life out in the middle of the Canadian wilderness and something clicked like this was early on in my backpacking experience where I knew that some of the deepest learning would take place through bodily experience in nature, through living with this, with the changes of each day 
through being fully present. And I, I didn't know how to do it, but I knew almost right away that it, that it meant a lot to me. It was possible. Did you have any experience or were you aware of vision quests at that point? Not at all. When I was in my 20s, I remember these friends and I talked about going by a uh, maybe visiting some Native Americans up in Canada there that I guess one of them knew about on a reservation, but we never did. And it was just a, a fantasy. I might have read a book or two. And not, not that our work is specifically, you know, a Native American ceremony, but the whole spirit of it is definitely indigenous. I didn't know anything about it. But the, the idea that these worlds should connect was present for a long time. And then in 1980, I was working for the Novato Police Department in Novato, California. I was working as a for the as the director of their youth service bureau, which was a, a place where you would counsel young people, adolescents who had been arrested and their families. And I had been trained in some good family therapy and had quite a bit of experience with that. And that was another skill I had, but it really didn't relate directly to my out my wilderness work related more internally to the Gestalt work I'd been trained in. And across the street from this little house that the city of Nevada owned a little house on Sherman Avenue that they turned into a counseling center. And a caddy corner across the street, up a little hill was this little house, another little house um, that had a more of a commanding view of the, of the area. And I'd see these people walking in and out of there with backpacks with a sort of a a dizzy look on their face, a little stoned, a little opened up. And eventually I ran into Stephen and Meredith Foster, who were running Rites of Passage. They had founded the organization just a few years before and um, talked to them at, at some community meetings and events. And Stephen um, put out to me that that maybe if since I like the wilderness, maybe I'd like to go somewhere where there was no trees or anything. <laughs> where it was just barren and really just be there and and be face myself i guess he he made it sound like a great challenge and it certainly caught my fancy because i knew that they were using wilderness in ways that that went deep that that involved the whole soul and i was interested in that so was it that experience then that led you down the the path into uh, learning how to do this as as part of your own life's work? Definitely, definitely. And so I did this vision quest in March of, 2000, of 1980. And then probably about a year later, I joined the training program and got and got their training to do this work. And then somewhere along the way, you started actually running the Rites of Passage organization. Yeah, that happened because they left just after I was trained, they, they left in like 1980, basically the end of 82, the beginning of 83, if I remember correctly. And then for a couple of years, it was still run by someone in their family. And I was on the staff. But then when that person decided to leave, the, the board, it was still closely tied to them, even though they had started their new organization. And Michael Batts and I, were he was a wonderful man he he died a couple of years ago of prostate cancer and he and i had shared a house together and went through the training together when it was announced by the board that they were going to close rites of passage 
because it was no longer needed. We didn't think so. So we we took it on ourselves to do some research and talk to people and then came to the board with a proposal to keep it open. And they agreed to, to allow us to become co-directors. And so it, it on a pruned down level, it survived. And then probably about 1986, um, Michael left and I was left as the sole director since then. So you've been involved in Vision Quest now well, since your first one in 1980. So well over 30 years you've been doing Vision Quest. Looking back on those 30 years of Vision Quest, why would you say this work is so important? What, why have you done this for so long? Hmm. Well, I like the way you frame that because, first of all, I found it a healing path for me, and I needed it. I have to understand that I haven't given you the whole story. It's a long, shaggy dog story. But in the early days, Rites of Passage had funding, and then it lost the funding before the Fosters left. And so it was really floundering economically, which is one reason they wanted to shut it. When we picked it up, it wasn't financially viable, but it, it was a love affair. And so I continued to run. I had a full-time job, not this work. Whenever I would get enough vacation accumulated, I would run a trip <laughs> for many years. I, I made no money at all from this. So the main reason I kept doing it was because, first of all, being in the wilderness healed me and made me more conscious and gave me a sense of joy that nothing else did. And secondly, that I found my gifts as a, you might say my gifts as a therapist, transformed into something more potent by becoming a guide. And, and I really wanted to give my gifts. So there was really not much choice for me. A story that I sometimes quote is in a, in a book I have on the Huichol, and it's a story from um, one of their elders, He's in his mid-80s and riding along in the back of a car with a young American, and he pulls out a cigarette and lights it up. And the American is really shocked, and he says, hey, don't you know that stuff will kill you? And the old man responds, it's not what you do, but what you don't do that kills you. That has stayed with me as a truth, that if I didn't do this work, some part of me would die. And so I did it for joy. I did it because it filled me. And it made me, each time I, I came back having learned something really important, but it also allowed me to get out of my own way and, and do the work I was called to do, which is to serve other people and, and help heal the world in my own way. Um, that was a calling I've had. So for many reasons, I had to do it. I love that word of, of transformation and, and the way that you were, were still doing healing, that you were you were simply transforming one healing modality, if you will, into another and applying your skills in a different kind of way. Yeah, I think that's really true. One thing that's beautiful about the Vision Quest work is it encompasses many different kinds of personalities. Michael, my buddy who, uh, you know, he, he and I led a number of trips together. He was trained in geology and he was a spiritual man. He would have people really pay attention to the rocks and, and this formation of the earth and all the mysteries in there. And he would bring a, a beautiful sense of ceremony and, and gentleness. I, I, my calling was originally as a therapist. So what I brought to it was more like looking for the old wounds and, and allowing them to surface and, and helping them to, to be worked with. All of that's legitimate. There's no one way. And, and I said, it's very diverse. The people I've trained come from very diverse backgrounds. But my own particular gift 
has been to help people who had really old, broken pieces of themselves to find a way through that. And I've done that in a number of situations. Um, the nature really is the healer. I mean, I've, I've created the container is what I'm saying, but I've learned to let go and let it happen. And I trust it. So that's that's been something of a theme in my life, probably because it's true for me that I had a lot of old broken stuff and it started to surface with this work. We've been using this phrase vision quest, but some of our listeners might not be familiar with what that is. Can you just describe what a vision quest is at a high level? You know, it's a it's a life passage ceremony. It's a term that was used and is used by Western anthropologists. So um, it doesn't specifically define a Native American ceremony. But the way we use it, it's a, a ceremony to mark a life transition. And that transition could be one that's part of the life cycle, like passing from childhood to adulthood or from adolescence into adulthood and marking the territory consciously crossing from one state into another. It's a form of rite of passage. The vision quest in particular is a form that utilizes nature and that in, in the various ways that it's been used, the term is definitely was applied to Native American ceremonies that they all had in common, I think, was time alone on the land and usually fasting in the, in the Native tradition without water or food to really sit and listen and be part of the landscape and let the inner and outer voices speak to you. So that that's the where the term comes from, the way we use it, it, we do a nine or a 10 day program, three days of preparation work, three or four days of solo, and three days of what's called incorporation or return work to help people um, gather up what's happened and, and reflect on it before returning to our, our society. Clearly in our culture, there isn't a lot of understanding of this. So when you come out of a powerful experience like that, you're kind of hit right away that that you've changed radically or things have happened, but that a lot of people aren't going to understand it. <laughs> so that makes the return challenging. I'm sure that you have endless stories. In fact, I know you do from talking with you previously about the power of this experience for all different kinds of people. Uh, can you maybe give a couple of quick examples, tell a couple of quick stories about why this is so important work and some of the, the benefits that people have seen from this kind of experience? Yeah. What we found is that if people don't mark their changes, they don't really have a, the opportunity to fully claim them. And some sense of a lingering feeling of incompletion and a lack of self-knowledge um, kind of haunts you. There are many examples of, of those who have gone out to quest for specific purposes. One, I mean, a simple and clear example is a man about two, three years ago, who came from Washington, D.C., um, who was in his 50s, who had lost his wife to cancer in the previous year, maybe a year before. And he needed to find his completion with her. He needed to say goodbye, and he needed to, to feel her spirit, in a sense. Um, but I'm not really giving a metaphysical thing here. I'm just saying he, he needed to feel her presence and to be able to speak with her. And he was able to do that on the vision quest and and to kind of release his grief and step into the next part of his life and know that everything he had had with her was true so it could support him at this time. That's a really beautiful example of what I said, fairly simple. I mean, it was very direct. What he needed was was healing and completion from his grief and from 
to be able to say goodbye. And that was his purpose. And that's what he accomplished. Other, other instances are, are not based so much on the life cycle. There was a woman who came to us who had had a crash in her life. She had been out. She's a young adult and had kind of fallen apart and gone home to her family um, in another state. And she came to us really needing to discover something of who she was at this time and what she was about. It was it was a little vague. But then during the quest, what came up is that she had she'd burst in. She'd come into tears and just stay there for hours on end and couldn't get through the grief. And we found out at that time that she had attended um, Naropa College, Naropa Institute, the, the university there. And this would happen to her when she'd meditate. And she ended up hospitalized twice. The monks there who she meditated with had told her to stop meditating. It was like a big wall of grief in her life that she couldn't get through. And she came to the vision quest actually in a kind of desperation to be able to deal with it finally. Because there was no help for her out there in the world. And with a lot of help from us, and it wasn't easy because she came back to base camp sobbing and we we found a way to support her to get herself through it. And she did. And she was radiant. I talked to her a, a year later and she was fine. Um, so that was a very dramatic example of somebody who'd hit a wall. And it, it all really went back to how she'd been parented. It was early stuff, but it was it was in her body. It was in her soul. And, and she had to face it. But she hadn't ever felt supported enough to do so. And nature is really powerful. And, and nature plus the guides holding it as possible allowed her to go through it. And then we have a lot of stories of young people, Andy, that are really powerful and really touching. There, there are so many different stories from the 17 and 18 year olds who have done our program. For them, it's a turning point between childhood and adulthood. It's right standing on the border and looking back and looking forward. And the the stories, every one of them are like gems. They're just they're beautiful, beautiful stories. The the one story that stands out for me from them is a collective story that we were out in the field with a big group, like ten kids. For us that's a big group because every we listen intensely to each story, so it takes a lot of hours. We're out in the field and it was two nights before the solo. And I thought we'd get started early on more in-depth talks because there was a lot to do. And I thought we normally start those the day before, but with a big group, we thought, and nobody wanted to speak. And they were, everybody was silent. So <laughs> I didn't want to push it. I said, well, I could tell you guys a story, but before I do, let's, let's just pass this talking piece around and see if anybody wants to say anything. Just check in or say hi or tell us how you're doing. And it took like three hours before that piece, that rattle I passed around, got back to me. And what came out in the group were like out of 10 people in the group, seven of them had parents who were alcoholics. And one of them had a parent who was mentally ill. And their stories were so painful and difficult that they couldn't even voice them to begin with. But once they did without it being shamed or, or therapized, they gave each other a tremendous amount of support. In the end, it became a group that said, we are courageous and strong enough to, to, to look this in the eye and to, you know, they love their parents, but they are able to name the shadows and to say, this is the wound we have to get through in order to grow up. 
And they all came back just fantastic. And I really, like I said, I couldn't name any one of them except to say as a whole, as a group, they formed a bond that allowed them to to look the, the difficult, really pretty powerfully difficult stuff right in the eye and find their strength. Um, and, and going on the solo is a condensed version of facing everything hard in your life and and letting in everything and letting in the joy and finding you have a lot more strength than you knew you did. And, and that's what they found out. What amazing and valuable work. That's great stuff. Thanks for those stories. Yeah, you're welcome. So the, the mission of this A Congruent Life project is, is also about sharing stories and particularly about sharing stories of authenticity. What does living authentically or congruently mean to you? You know, for a number of years, it's meant um, raising a lot of my own food. Isn't that weird? <laughs> and another, another thing it's meant to me personally has been um, being able to walk out my door and be in the world without having to get in a car. I, I live in community and I, I live in nature so I can go out my door and go for a run or walk down to the garden or do something that feels like, like I'm not living just a technological life. Um, that, that's one of my definitions. I guess that's the definition of a good life for me is having a lot of food that I eat from the garden and I'm kind of fanatical about preserving it. I, I do a lot of canning and freezing because I really love opening up a, a frozen soup in the middle of the winter here and, and tasting the garden. Being part of the cycle of nature is part of what being authentic means to me. Um, touching in on that, being able to listen to bird song where, where I live or where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, another key thing for me is um, discovering this is this took a while for me. Um, I was in a crisis with it at a certain point and I came through it. Differentiating making a living and giving my deepest gift and not insisting that they be the same. Um, it's really important to me. Living authentically means tapping into what the gifts are that I have to give in the world and making sure that I'm doing some of that. And it feels like that was part of the old vision quest teaching that, that, you know, as you give things away, the more flows into you. And it felt right away really, um, that I needed to learn how to do that when I touched this work or it would get kind of stuck. So particularly in the work I do, it's meaningful on that level before it ever became a question of making a living. Another thing for me, um, I don't, this isn't a philosophy for anyone else necessarily, but for me, uh, learning how to work cooperatively with people has been a real, both a challenge and a, and a richness. So at this point, it's hard for me to imagine living uh, solo. Uh, I mean, I live in my own house, but living, you know, in a self-contained unit, um, being part of a of a an organism or a an, something that has a larger life to it, taking part in that in that world. Um, and for me, that's community. For some people, that would be like their town or community like that. But for me, it's it's um, the land and the people that I live with here. I really, I really um, feel like an important part of what's authentic for me. You touched a couple times there about the community that you live in. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little more about that and how you ended up living there? Sure. It's called Monin's Rill, and it was founded by Quakers mostly in the mid-1970s. I wasn't around here then, and I didn't know anything about it. And in 19, 1987, about 
88, maybe a little later, maybe it was 89. My wife and I were living um, still in Novato. We had bought a little house there on the country, and I was starting to raise all my own vegetables, so that was fun. And uh, we're feeling pretty content. And then one day I looked at her and I said, have you ever thought about community since, you know, since college and since, you know, those days when people would kind of rent a house together or kind of more communal lifestyle? And and she said, no, but it would be interesting to see if, if and we came to the decision that if there was a way to learn more about it, we might want to follow up on that. And a week later, I came home with a little newspaper published up in Sonoma County where I worked. And she read the back of it. And there was a little square about two inches by one inches that had a workshop called Community Making It and Keeping It. And it was taking place in Santa Cruz. And we looked at each other and we should do this if we're if we have any really serious interest. OK, so we signed up for it, drove all the way down to Santa Cruz, did this thing. Two things came out of that. One was it was actually put on by this community, Monin's Rill, but that's they rented the Quaker Center down there in Ben Lomond. And so um, it was actually in, up here. It was only 30 miles from where we were living. So after the weekend, we were invited to come up here and visit. But the other thing is that they were out really looking for members. And that's one reason they put the workshop on, as well as teaching people about community life. About 80 people were there. And that was over 20 years ago, and they and it's never been repeated. So how I found it was by divine intervention. <laughs> Although now I know enough to know you could go online and look. There's like the Fellowship for Intentional Community has lots of communities listed, and you could go visit them. But at the time, it was just a fantasy for us. And when we got to meet the people and visit the land and start to see how it worked, um, it appealed to us. And then in 1991, we had a chance to move up here and we did. And what's the community like today? It's in transition. The, a lot, the founders have left or died. They were in their 90s, really, or they still are, the ones who are alive. We're open to younger members. There's some families here. There's some people my age. We're going through a, a, a transition of our own. So there's some struggle, there's some challenges, but it's beautiful to share this lifestyle. Um, what we hold in common and, and the value of what we have here is really, I think, priceless. So, And it's very generous. It's um, a way of being able to have access by sharing to things that if you had a, just a decision you needed to be a multimillionaire to own everything, you wouldn't be able to do it. But by by virtue of doing things together, a lot becomes possible. It's a consensus-based community, so it's a lot of time spent in meetings and working things out with people. Um, not everybody has the same viewpoint, which is good and also a challenge. But it's very enlivened. It's a, it's a wonderful place to live. What would you consider to be some of your failures, and what have they taught you? There have been a lot of good lessons by doing the, the Vision Quest work has been a real teacher. So it's humbling, usually. You find out that you, you didn't know what you thought you knew or you, there, there are always lessons of bumping up against yourself um, from that work. I, I don't know, I don't need to really give examples, but say that work's been a real teacher. Whether, whether that's a failure or just a teaching possibility, I don't know, but there have been times when we've processed through what we learned after a program. And, and said, oh, you know, this is this changes our point of view on something. And that's been valuable. On a personal level, um, 
I had a crisis in my marriage about um, 10 years ago that um, that really was profound and we were about really to get divorced. And then um, and then the joke I tell Andy is that that the, the divorce didn't succeed. <laughs> and that was a failure um, because we tried to go. I tried to go through with it and I couldn't. And so I had to turn around and look at what was going on. And um, and there was a lot of grief and a lot of pain and a lot of unexpressed things that needed to be expressed. Um, and from that low point, we made a decision to re remake our relationship. And we did. And it's wonderful. Um, but there was a lot of failure at that point. I mean, my marriage was broken, but it, it led it, it led its way out. One more somewhat lighthearted response to failures. I'm a pretty good guitarist, but I always wanted to play like Doc Watson, and I was never able to even approach it. So that that if I had, if I had been that good, I might have scrapped everything and become a professional musician. So what's next for you, Mike? What um, current project in your world are you most excited about? I'm I'm really excited about. We have a veterans project. We're offering a free Vision Quest to any United States military veteran, and uh, we're really hoping to get people from the um, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and we've had participants from those conflicts on, who, you know, were, got out of the military and came on our program, and the impact is just profound. Um, what we're seeing is the need for a ceremony to mark a transition from from being basically at war, being in the military, being in that frame of mind, to be to reclaiming your old life and becoming a civilian and letting go and saying goodbye to or reconciling with things that have happened. And uh, it's needed. It's really, really needed, we know. Um, so I'm excited about that project and uh, also concerned that we haven't yet, we've got really good leads and good helpers helping us, but we haven't yet found our group of men and women to do the program. Um, so uh, that's one one thing. I think if it proves to be as potent as I think it will be, I think it'll be something that could make an enormous contribution. It's not the same as treatment. It's not the same as PTSD, you know, cures. It's really about um, people who need to have a ceremony to come from one state to another. And, um, and you know, I read... In one book I read by a Native American, he said that um, they used to do like two days of ceremony for every day of combat that because they knew that combat was really damaging. And we don't do anything like that. So we have people who are, are still walking around in that combat damage. And I'm hopeful that our work will make a will have it some contribution to these uh, people's lives and to our country. Really, it's a pretty big hope but I think it has the possibility. What valuable gift, not just to military personnel trying to adjust back to civilian life, but to the world at large. Yeah. yeah. We are continuing to um, work with separate groups of men and women as part of our offerings to, in a safe, powerful environment to help men and women to um, enter into their their full selves and their and their their truths really the strength that they can find and sometimes same same gender um, stuff is really really important for that and I'm grateful that we have those programs on our schedule each year.
Um, that, that's an ongoing commitment. We've been doing um, both of those programs really for over 20 years. Um, we started with the men's though, and, um, so probably more of the men's work. I'm getting more involved in training, Andy. Um, there's, I, I want to be able to pass on some of what I've learned um, to people who are interested in learning it. And so um, I've had an ongoing training group here in, in the Bay Area, but also I've been doing workshops to help people to be exposed to this work. Um, I'm doing one up in Edmonton in July. I did a program in Tacopa, California in the desert last December. And I'll continue to do one or two of those programs a year. Um, the way I see it is it's about healing. And sometimes it's, to, like, like I mentioned this earlier, it's about giving your gifts to heal others. But a lot of people come to those programs because they want to receive it for themselves. And I think it really applies to anybody in a healing profession. It can be of value. So I'm excited about this modality of eco-psychology and of earth-based wisdom entering into our vocabulary. I mean, when I started, it was really an outlier. <laughs> but now, 30 years later, um, there's been a lot more done and a lot written. And this is only one of many um, avenues that, that have that point of view. One other project that I'm very excited about that has been growing over the last three or four years has been a, a leadership work using the Vision Quest as a tool. And we've been getting entrepreneurs and people in the business world who have social consciousness and really seeing the, the way this weaves in. And I'm, I, this has been another area of great growth for me of beginning to recognize um, what the impact can be there. Um, so far, the culmination of that work has been um, that we led a group of Russian and Lithuanian businessmen on a um, one day, a 24-hour vision quest, um, which was a total of four-day program. And we, we needed time to get them in it and get them out. But the, the solo was one day in Hawaii um, last spring, last April. We had It was really an amazing program, and we had translators and people who had come from Russia and done our program in the past. And uh, so the thought that this perspective of listening to nature could enter into the business community. Um, one man from that group was a very successful businessman. And he, you know, it's Eastern Europe. The idea of personal freedom is so new there. He had fast sports cars and had built, built a really fantastically successful business. But after the Vision Quest, he said, my my main thing now is is to make nature the the focal point of of any business decisions I make. So that was pretty exciting, and um, we we're continuing to offer this leadership vision quest in the United States, which has drawn an international group of people each year. Um, which, as I learn more about their thinking and how they're using it, it's really about um, taking this idea of your gifts back into your work world. And for these folks, um, the, the decisions they make as business leaders may have a tremendous impact. And the Vision Quest really has a huge impact on the way they think about um, what it would be to build a, an authentic and an ethical uh, form of business. So that's very exciting to me. Is there a final thought, Mike, that you'd like to leave our listeners with regarding authenticity? It's interesting that one of my trainees a couple of a few days ago when we had a training group 
she brought in a quote from Eric Erickson about authenticity being like this final stage of human development and how a marker of it was to be able to hold your truth or stay with what's real for you in any circumstances, regardless of who is around you or where you found yourself. Um, so I think of it partly as building character. That's an older term <laughs> where, um, where the process of strengthening your core um, leads you to a knowledge of who you are and, and you carry that, that strength and that truth in a gentle but definite strong way back into the world. Um, the, you know, James Hillman talked about how turning inward robs the community of your gifts. And um, so part of authenticity is knowing your gifts and, and being willing to share them from the inside out. Um, and that that's so needed in our world today. We need leaders. We need people to step up from that inner place, the place where they see the beauty of the created world. They realize what their life is about and and they're willing to, in a certain sense, put themselves on the line. Um, those, All that is very close to um, a deeper sense of, of what I think living an authentic life would look like. Mike, how can our listeners um, both find out about what's going on with Rites of Passage and engage with you? Um, for Rites of Passage, it's the website, rightsofpassagevisionquest.org. Um, rights is spelled R-I-T-E-S. Um, or they can call us at 707-537-1927. We get a lot of email from high school students thinking about what to do with their lives from people in major life transitions. Write me um, at get on the website. You can see how to reach us by email. Um, we're always into connecting with people in different situations and uh, seeing how how we can connect. We've done a lot of supporting people to go off and do um, day-long programs on their own with our support as an initial step so that they don't have to come out to California necessarily to start working with these themes. Great. Well, we'll be sure to link to that on the show notes for this episode. Mike Botkin, thanks very much for the work that you do. That's really been valuable work for me personally, and I know for the world at large. And thanks very much for spending this time with us and sharing these stories. Thanks for having me, Andy. Thanks to Mike Botkin for that conversation. Since this is episode 13, the show notes for this episode are online at acongruentlife.net slash 13. That's the numbers one, three. If you have any interest in Vision Quest work, please do check out Rites of Passage through the link there. If you enjoy this program, I'd really appreciate it if you take a quick moment to leave a positive review in the iTunes store. That's really helpful to a young podcast like this one. There's a link for that at the top of the website at acongruentlife.net. You can also subscribe to our community list on the right sidebar of the website. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.